Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you'd like to support the ministries of Rancho Church as we advance the cause of Christ together, you may do so at rancho.tv slash giving. Enjoy. Hey, a couple of long, many, many years ago, I heard a quote, and I'm telling you, this quote has stuck in my head ever since. It's from A.W. Tozer, and he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, and when I read that a couple of days ago, it just begged the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Because that has an impact in your life. I'm not sure how much it, like, it's the most important thing about us, but it does have a huge impact. What we think about God matters. And it's interesting, I've read a couple books, I just kind of dabble in this, but I've been very fascinating with science, some science research recently over the last 10 years that really is looking at what goes on in our brains when we think about God. And they're finding that what you think about God does affect your brain and it does affect you. One, one book that I read in this research, uh, they, they kind of broke it down that if your understanding is in a loving God and that's what you think about first when you think about God, what happens is it actually strengthens your, pro, uh, your prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of your brain that helps you process compassion and empathy. It gives you the ability to reason and judge appropriately. Actually, you worship out of that part of your brain and it helps you to have an understanding of morality and, and right and wrong. That's the part of your brain that kind of sparks when you think of God as a loving God. Now, if your focus is more on fear and you find yourself that you're focused on that there's a God out there that you have to fear, that he's cruel, that he's distant, that he wants to punish you for your sins, it actually stimulates your brain's limbic system. And that part of your brain is actually meant to stimulate every once in a while when you find yourself in a situation that's a crisis. The part of you that needs the fear because you, you, know, you need to run away from that lion or something like that, you know? Now, if it's chronically stimulated and it gets overly stimulated, it can actually change your brain and lead you to more fear, insecurity, selfishness, anger, rage, lust, jealousy, envy, and aggression. So it's interesting. Man, A.W. Tozer, Amanda, what you think about God, what you first think about God matters. And science is now catching up and talking about the idea that it affects your brain and how your brain functions. And so we've been looking at these promises of God, taking a look at what God teaches us about himself through these promises. And, and I hope today, as we continue on in this, that it might just help us focus on God, maybe for some of us in a different way, or maybe it's just gonna encourage you in a way that you already do. But, but last week we started the promise and we went back to Genesis 12 and I, I'm just gonna simplify what we talked about. God made a promise to bless. God made a promise to bless through Abraham, throughout the book of Genesis, four or five different times. I will bless through your descendants, through your people, I will bless all nations and all peoples on the earth. And so that's what we looked at. And we talked about over the last week, like just the idea, it's the kingdom of God that came, that blessing came through Christ, establishing God's kingdom here on this earth and moving it forward, this spiritual kingdom that is within 
here, now, and forevermore. We're going to continue on looking at a promise in the Bible. And we're going to look at the book of Micah. And we're going to look at this prophet. And in this, this prophet kind of, the reason I picked this book is this is a big overview of this book that, uh, that really covers a lot of Israel's journey of rebellion and wrestling with God. But there's also a promise in here that I see throughout the scriptures that I think could have a profound impact on our life. But instead of me talking about Micah, we're gonna take a look at a Bible project video overviewing the book of Micah. Pay attention, it's awesome. And then we'll come back and we'll take a look at some of these promises. So check out this video. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion. God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. 
The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Lot, man, if you have not checked out the Bible Project, gotta check it out. They go through every book in the Bible with these videos, and I love cartoons. It's way easier for me than reading. So, But such a powerful book. 
Such a powerful prophetic book. And I love the statement that was on that video at the end when he said this, God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil. His covenant love and promises are more powerful than human evil. And they love that he's talking to that covenantal love he's talking about is what we looked at last week, going back to Abraham. And that promise, he mentioned that, that promise that through your descendants, which ultimately we know as we looked at it last week is Jesus Christ, the world will be blessed. God promised to bless. And through this prophet, through all the rebellion, there's a deep foundation of that blessing that we see in here. And we see it throughout the scriptures. And you find it in Micah 7, verse 18, where he says this, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and, you hur and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What a beautiful promise that, that in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the consequences they're facing because of their rebellion, God's promise of blessing still stands. There's a lot we can look at in this book, but there's just a couple of these promises that I want us to consider today that I think could be very important for us to just pay attention to. And maybe it might even, as I said earlier, encourage you of how you already see God. It might actually shift a little bit about how you see God. But what Micah says about God's anger and about God's mercy is so refreshing. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. If one of your first thoughts about God is that he must be angry, let that promise in Micah, let it settle in your heart and mind. Because this is the truth of the heart of God, not just spoken of through Micah, but this is the truth of, of the heart of God that you could see throughout the scriptures, through many of the writers of the Bible. Let's take a look at some of them. Psalm 30, verse five, for his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Or Psalm 103, eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. You remember Jonah? Jonah in the, in the whale, and he gets called to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh is this wicked people, and Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. He does not want to go tell them about God and why. Why doesn't he want to go? Jonah 4, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, and I want you to send calamity. And I know if I go tell them about you, you will forgive and you will love. Joel says the same exact phrasing as Jonah did in his book. What about Lamentations. In Lamentations, the book of Lament, chapter 3, verse 31, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Or Daniel, Daniel in Babylonian captivity because of the disobedience of the children of Israel in chapter 9, verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. 
Man, you look at these verses, and there is more than just this. I just picked some of the key ones. If your first thought is that you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God, I believe you have an incorrect understanding of the heart of God. You're focusing on the wrong part. Now, yes, God can get angry. Rightly so, right? I mean, heck, I get angry. Anyone else here get angry? Am I the only one? Okay, couple, good, good. I have, okay, now, you all know, right, when you're angrier is justified and good and when it's selfish and wrong, right? You know what I mean by that. I know when I'm angry because I'm not getting my way and I'm throwing my little adult tantrum. But at the same time, we need to be looking out around us oftentimes and we see what's going on in the world. I think a good anger is important. And I think when we see unjust things going on, when we see the way people are treating other people, when we see things like that, it matters. Anger is good in those areas and we should be. Some of us care about how animals are treated and how the earth is treated. We should pay attention and we should care and we should get angry. Some of you parents know what this is like, right? Sometimes I've gotten angry at my kids and the foundation of that is they're making a decision that I know could be destructive and harmful and lead them in a bad direction. And it stirs us up. I think we need to have that. So oftentimes, anger towards the right things can be honorable. Now, we're humans and we fail in that a lot. But God, when I think of God, I believe God gets angry in ways that are always right. It's always corrective. It's always restorative. It's never just retributive. He doesn't get angry because he's just a mad person thrown in a tantrum. So I do believe God gets angry and I think anger is okay for when it's for the right reasons. But here's what Micah promises, that God promised that he is slow to anger and it will not last forever. That is a beautiful promise. As that video talked about, we're talking 500 years of rebellion when God finally steps in. Talk about being slow to anger. Now that's the kind of anger I'm not real good at. Slow to anger. And on some of us, we can hold on to our anger for a long time. Gonna make them suffer for the next week. Not God. He is slow to anger and it will not last forever. So if God being angry is something you find yourself focusing on, I hope that this promise that you see in Micah might you might take the heart, you might be encouraged and you allow yourself to stop having this be what you think about God first and foremost when you think about God. Because that's not what we should think about. And I understand for some of our traditions, right? And some of our, you know, experiences and, and some of the ways that we've been told to read the Bible in certain ways that, man, we got this anger thing on our head. But what we need to do is we need to look at how these verses that we just read, what does he continue on when he talks about God's anger and what else does he say that we looked at and what seems to be emphasized more? What seems to be the heart of God that all these writers of the Bible want us to see? Micah, you do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy, but his favor lasts a lifetime. He's abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity 
He will show compassion so great as his unfailing love. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Throughout the scriptures, it seems pretty clear to me that focusing on God being angry is not focusing on his true character and heart. Because God promised that his love and mercy abounds and will never fail. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. And that's what we ought to set our hearts and our minds on. The Bible doesn't say that God is anger. It says, yes, that he might get angry at times. But what does the Bible say God is? What? Love, 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. It isn't saying that he is loving at times like he gets angry at times. The Bible says that the very character of God is love. And even, I believe, at the times of his anger, it is driven by love. And that's why he sent Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send his son? Have you guys ever heard John 3, 16? Let me reiterate. Let me remind us. For God was so angry with the world. Does not. It's not the picture. For God so loved the world that he gave his own and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The promise given to Abraham that all people would be blessed was fulfilled through Christ because God is love. And we need to take note of this. It took, it was a journey for me to really get to see this as clearly as I'm hoping every day in my life that it becomes more clear. But it's this, that Jesus did not come because God was angry, but because of his unfailing love and delight in showing mercy, forgiving sins, and giving life. Just as was promised throughout the Old Testament, exactly what Micah prophesied about, unknown to Micah at the time that he was talking about Jesus. But the Bible talks about that this was who God was before the creation of time. Ephesians talks about that before the foundation, this reality of our being holy and blameless in God's sight was gonna come through the love of Jesus Christ. Timothy talks about that this grace was ours before the foundation of the world in Christ. God being seen through Christ is seeing the God that is from everlasting to everlasting. Seeing the heart of God, the God of love. 1 John 4, verse 9 says, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved him, God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to put on display the true heart and character of God. 
that God is love and that that love is unfailing and never ending. Jesus took on sin. He took on the violence and the hatred as the result. He took on darkness. He felt far from his father, though his father was with him. He wondered where his father was and he took on death. But he conquered it by raising from the dead. Jesus came to show us that sin, darkness, and death don't have to capture us because God's love and goodness is greater. It's greater. In Romans chapter two, Paul says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us from this system of I need to do this, I'm not good enough, or whatever it might be that captures us, whatever it might be that drives us, the fear. I mean, he comes at a time in human history when the oppression from the religious and the political systems was so great. And he comes to set them free. When he says, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is here. The blessing of Abraham is here. Believe the good news. And I do like to say, just believe, because I think we need to recapture that reality again. Just believe. I mean, when Jesus or when the, the writers of the New Testament say, well, anyone that believes, he was opening the door for people to freely come. It was moving away from this idea of religious systems and jumping through hoops and do this and do that and bloodlines and pay money. All the things that burden people that they never felt that they can come. When Jesus comes onto the scene, it's like, just believe. And I can see the religious leaders going, what do you mean just believe? We're not going to make as much money on that message. Just believe. Just come. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Man, when my focus is on an angry God, that does not bring rest for my souls, my soul. And you know, by the time Jesus came onto the scene, I think Jesus was able to sit there and say, man, you already feel this lack of rest in your soul because of who God has become in your guys' eyes. He came to set us free from that, to see the promise that God is love. Take my yoke, it's easy, and my burden, which is light. Doesn't sound like God is mad, sounds more like God is love. Have you ever received that love? Have you just received and trusted in Jesus, accepted that he carried the weight of sin, experienced darkness, and actually faced death? But he rose. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death to show that forgiveness, hope, and life is available to all who will come and just believe that God is love and he loves you. And he freely forgives you. And he delights to show mercy. And he pardons abundantly. No hoops to jump through. No religion to join. No promises to make. It's a promise that we receive. The promise is on God. 
He's the one that made the promise. That should set us free. To receive that promise that God is love, he loves you, and he sent his son in the world to show it. I hope that you might trust in that love today. That when you think of God, the first thing you think of is that God is love. That just might change your mind, change how you see things, change your heart, and change your life forever. If you're at a place in your life that you just feel like you've never come to God and just really accepted that love and, and, and you're seeing that today, I want to invite you for one of two things. We'll have a prayer corner over here. We'll have some pastors over there. You can go pray. Let them just pray with you and walk you through that. It's also Baptism Sunday. Man, you can go out to our baptismal uh, uh, pool. I don't know. Do we call it a pool? <laughs> Thing. And it's right out the doors to the right. And someone will be out there. They can walk with you and pray with you and baptize you. It's identifying you with the love of God, that Jesus took on sin and death and darkness, and he rose, conquering sin and death. And in him, you experience the same thing. And go out there. We'd love to walk with you through that. And I hope that today might have a profound impact in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. And when we look through the scriptures and we weigh out all the things spoken about you and the things we see, what we see most clearly is that your love is who you are. Your very heart and character is that of love. It has no end. It is unfailing. Yeah, we see times when you get angry, but you are slow to getting there and it doesn't last forever. Your heart is to draw all men, all people, all nations to yourself to redeem, to restore, and to give hope and life. Thank you. Help us when we think of you, God, that the first thing we think of is that you are love. For your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.